Good morning and welcome. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, the passage read just a moment ago. The title of our message today, What Do You Plan to Do With Jesus? Jesus was an interesting figure, character, human being, divine being. A lot of things could be said about Jesus, and there are a lot of things that ought to be said about him based on what the Bible has to say. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus, of course, in this context, is standing before Pontius Pilate, and a question is asked. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, he had the ability to ask just the right question at the right time. On one occasion, he asked, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? In Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilate asks a question that continues to be very relevant. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? When you look at this question, I would submit to you today that it is a very personal question. It is a question that all of us must one day answer. What will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Not only is it a personal question, but it is a profound question. There are a lot of questions that we ask on a daily basis. There are a lot of folks that will typically ask us questions. But is there a more profound question than what will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? And then there's a third thing. It is a pressing question. The question that was asked by Pilate is a question that is incumbent on all of us to answer at the right time. A lot of folks delay in deciding what they're going to do with Jesus. And yet what this question says to us is it is a pressing question. It's something that we can't defer. We can't afford to defer in answering. So in light of this question, I would ask, what do you plan to do with Jesus? Let me give you some reasons why I believe you ought to decide to live for Him. There are a lot of reasons why people typically tend to choose to live for the Lord. But there are some things that are said in the Scriptures that ought to make it evident to us that Jesus is God. That is, Jesus Christ is the second member of the Godhead. And He is worthy of living for. I want to begin by first of all talking about some of the attributes of Jesus. And there are a couple that I would share with you this morning. First of all, we talk about the perpetuity of Jesus. The idea here is that He is an eternal being. Micah in chapter 5 at verse 2 spoke of the Messiah, the Christ who would come. And He said with reference to the Christ whose goings forth are from of old even from everlasting, from the days of eternity. 
And the idea that Micah was stressing is that Jesus is an eternal being. We think about the words of John in John chapter 1 when he said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said before a number of Jewish people in his day, Before Abraham was, listen to him, I am, denoting his pre-existent state. There's some people that have the idea that Jesus is a created being, was a created being. Jesus Christ is, as John in the Revelation said, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. So when we talk about the attributes of Jesus, you need to understand He is an eternal being. He is the second member of the Godhead. And then there is a second thing that I would call attention to in light of this. We think about the perpetuity of Jesus, but what about His power? His eternal nature is a reflection of His deity, but what about His power? Jesus demonstrated creative power, didn't He? When you go back to the book of Genesis, and Moses talks about the origin of life, the origin of the universe... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was God that said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God was the divine architect. Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. So John said in John chapter 1, verse 3, And by Him all things were made. Through Him all things were made. And without Him, not anything was made that was made. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1 speaks of Jesus who laid the foundations of the earth. He said the heavens are the works of His hands. Jesus was the Creator. He has creative power. He demonstrated that in Colossians chapter 1. Paul said, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. So Jesus has creative power. He has sustaining power, doesn't He? What is it that holds our universe in check? The order, the symmetry of the universe in which we live is not by chance. But rather, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. So He has creative power, sustaining power, and then thirdly, redeeming power. It was through Jesus that we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16 that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body unto God through the cross. Jesus came with the purpose of redeeming us from sin. He was the only one that could save lost humanity. That's why Paul said 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus gave up heaven to come to earth to die for our sins. Jesus, during His earthly ministry, said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. There's a second thing I want you to see. We ask the question, what do you plan to do with Jesus? Well, we ought to live for Him because first and foremost, we see His attributes declare Him to be deity, to be God in the flesh. And Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will one day come again. What about His admission? The fact that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God ought to say something to us. When you look at some of the claims that were made about Jesus, what did people say in the first century about the Christ? There were a number of people that had a variety of things to say about Him. On one occasion, the question was asked, Is this not the carpenter's son? Was Jesus nothing more than the son of a carpenter, just an ordinary human being? Was Jesus something more than a carpenter's son? In Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus when He asked the disciples what people were saying about Him? And He said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others are saying you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So there were a lot of different answers to the question about the identity of Christ. Again, I think about what Jesus asked. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? It's a relevant question, isn't it? Either Jesus is Lord or he was a liar. So we talk about the various claims that were made about him. But what about the claims that were made by him? What did Jesus say about himself? Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus had a lengthy discussion with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? And during the course of their conversation, they talked about the place of worship. And this woman said, after Jesus had instructed her to go and call her husband, and she said, you know what, I don't have a husband. And he said, you've rightly said you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're now living with is not your husband. And so she said, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She understood, look, she's in the presence of somebody very special. And so in that context, she said, I know that when the Christ comes, he'll tell us all things after they discussed worship. Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 26, identifies himself as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Anointed One, the Christ. So Jesus is saying to this woman, look, I am the Messiah. And then what about in John chapter 9? You remember Jesus gave sight to a man that was born blind? And the disciples asked the question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Jesus gave sight to this man. And this man took a lot of heat from the religious leaders of that day. 
And so in the latter part of John chapter 9, Jesus asked the question. It was a personal question. It was a profound question. It was a pressing question. Here's what he asked. Do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said, The one you're talking to? He said, I'm the Son of God, didn't he? So Jesus here admitted to being God's only Son. So you think about some of the claims that were made about him and then his own claims. On one occasion, Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. And so we're talking about deity. In Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus had asked what people were saying about him, he asked, what do you think? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus didn't rebuff him for that, did he? He didn't say, Peter, no, you're wrong. No, he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus is the Son of God. By his own admission. There's a third thing that I would call attention to. We, we talk about what do you plan to do with Jesus? We think about his attributes. The fact that his very nature suggests he's deity. His own admission that he is deity. What about his adoration? What about the adoration of Jesus? Was Jesus not worthy of worship? Do you remember when the Apostle Peter was instructed to go and to speak to Cornelius and his household? When he got there, Cornelius fell down and began to worship him. And what did Peter say? He said, stand up, for I am also what? A man. I'm just a man, made of flesh and blood. Not so with Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, the Bible says, Speaking of the firstborn who came into the world, God said, Let all the angels worship Him. Let all the angels of God worship Him. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, the Bible says, There came wise men from the east. And they said, we've seen his star in the east and we have come to do what? To worship him. Jesus was worthy of worship. Suggesting what? His deity. That he was God in the flesh. In Matthew chapter 14, there's an interesting account of Jesus walking on the water. And you remember the apostle Peter asked the question, he said, Lord, if it's you... Bid me to come out on the water with you. And so the Lord said, come on. And so here is the apostle Peter out on the water. And what happened? He began to be afraid. Started to sink. And he cried out to the Lord. And the Bible says that when they got back in the boat, the winds ceased. And those who were in that boat worshipped him. In John chapter 9, the passage I alluded to a moment ago about the man that was born blind who received sight from Jesus. 
When Jesus identified himself as the Son of God, do you know what John tells us about that man? John said, and he worshipped him. Jesus was worthy of worship, wasn't he? Suggesting again his deity. There's a fourth thing I would call attention to, and that is the ability of Jesus. Jesus has tremendous ability. And so we ask the question, what do you plan to do with Jesus? We talk about his attributes, that he is deity. His admission that he's the son of God. His adoration that he is worthy of worship. But what about his ability? Did you know that Jesus has the ability to save, as the Hebrew writer said in chapter 7, verse 25, he has the ability to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by him. Jesus has the ability to save every single human being. He has that kind of ability. There's no one outside the realm of his ability to save. It might be the case that you're here today and your life has been broken and marred by sin. And your life is not what you had ever imagined it to be. And it may be the case that you're thinking right now, you know what, you just don't understand my past. There's no way a gracious God in heaven could ever forgive me. Well, you don't know Jesus. Because Jesus has the ability to save. Here's what Jesus said. I'm come to seek and to save the lost. Matthew records in Matthew chapter 1, about the birth of Christ, that he would save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came, to save. He came to save you personally. The Lord Jesus Christ is interested in the well-being of every single person. Paul said that though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Sin will break you. Sin will not only break your life, it will waste your life. And yet Jesus has the ability to do what? To restore. He has the ability to give hope. The Lord Jesus Christ, He understands. And He can help you today. So He has the ability to save. It's a great thought. To think that Jesus can save me from sin. There's a second thing that he has the ability to do. And that is to support us. In Hebrews chapter 2 and about verse 18, the Bible says, In that he himself was tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. You know what he's saying? He's saying that those of us who are a part of the human family, those of us who belong to the family of God, we struggle with temptation, don't we? Why? Because the tempter is always trying to lead us astray. You remember what Peter said, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The writer is saying that Jesus has the ability to do what? To support you in times of temptation. 
to give you that way, that way out as the Hebrew writer, or rather as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So when temptation comes our way, Jesus is there to support us, to give us that strength that we need. And then there's a third thing associated with this. He has the ability to subdue. In Philippians chapter 3, the Bible talks about how some are minding earthly things. But he said, our citizenship, our commonwealth is in heaven. He said, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body, that is, the body of humiliation, that it might be conformed unto His glorious body, whereby He is able to subdue all things. Jesus has the ability, number one, to raise the dead, doesn't He? To empty out the cemeteries. Revelation chapter 1. Jesus said, I am He who lives and was dead. He said, Behold, I live forevermore. Amen. And He said, I have the keys of Hades and death. Jesus is saying, Look, I have the ability to empty out the cemetery. I have the ability to take this body, the body that you and I are housed in. And He said, Not only can I raise it up, but I can change it. Remember what Paul said, flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. So what's going to happen? This body is going to be changed, isn't it? This mortal body will become an immortal body. This corruptible body will become an incorruptible body. Now somebody asked the question, what's it going to look like? I don't know. But I know this, if he could make a body... Described by David in Psalm 139 as being fearfully and wonderfully made. Can you imagine what that heavenly body will be like? A body that won't be subjected to death ever again. A body that will never again know pain or sorrow or crying. That's the kind of power we're talking about. So you think about the ability of Jesus. Suggest what is His deity? So I ask you today, what do you plan to do with Jesus? Listen again to what Pilate asked. What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? I want to close by saying, this is a personal question. Pontius Pilate, 2,000 years ago, stood in the presence of Jesus. Jesus stood before Pilate. There is coming a day when Pontius Pilate will stand before Jesus. Jesus today is standing before us and he's asking the question, what are you going to do with me? One day though, we'll stand before him. And the question then will be, what's he going to do with you? What's he going to do with me? So it is a personal question. It's a profound question. There will never be another question that will equal this one in your life. We talk about who you're going to marry, where you're going to go to school, what are you going to do, how you're going to live, etc. This is the most profound question you'll ever answer. And it's a pressing question because you've got to make a decision. 
This may be your last opportunity to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. That's why it's so pressing. A lot of folks in services on Sunday, in the cemetery the following Sunday. So I ask you, what do you plan to do with Jesus? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, here's what you need to do. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Here's what the Bible says. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Acts 2, verse 38. If you'll do that, the Bible tells us God will add you to the church. Acts 2, 47. Jesus is described as the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5, 23. So if you're in Christ and you're in the church and you're living faithfully, then you have the hope of life eternal, Titus 1, 2. If you're here today, for whatever reason your life is not what it ought to be and you're a child of God and you're, you're thinking right now, you know what, I need to get, get my life straightened out. We would be happy to pray with you and for you Understanding that God has the ability to forgive. You remember what John said, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that simple. So, what do you plan to do with Jesus as we stand to sing?